Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 43. Hear the word of the Lord. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for thou art the God of my strength. Why hast thou rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise thee, O God my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do ask for your word to be applied to us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that this true and sacred text would impact our thinking and feeling and living, that you might transform us by your living word, and that we might give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the 18th century turned to the 19th, uh, weakness, slumber, and death characterized the Church of Scotland from one end of the land in the highlands to the other in the lowlands. Oh, the church's place in society was flourishing. Ministers were respected in the nation in a way they had never been respected before. They were great community leaders and experts in almost every endeavor. Among the ministry of the Church of Scotland, some of the finest mathematicians in all the world were numbered. Among the ministers and preachers of the Church of Scotland, experts in botany and geology and biology were numbered among the ministers preaching every week in pulpits. Oh, you see, they had been overtaken by a reaction to the doctrine of the Westminster Confession, a reaction which settled into simple, old-fashioned moralism. What they had to preach from the pulpit was just a dry formula of outward obedience. And it didn't take very long to prepare for that kind of a message. So they threw themselves into things which were popular and respectful and admired. Uh, in their communities. Young ministers, as they were examined before presbytery, were warned not to tire or bother themselves with too much study of the Bible, Uh, not to uh, wear themselves out or endanger their health by going from house to house and and home to home in the parish, uh, caring for the sick and the dying and the suffering. Uh, That sort of thing was not at all necessary. They should stay in their studies. Uh, They should absorb themselves only with the abstract truth of God. And so spiritual weakness, slumber, and death fell upon the land. 
But God, the Holy Spirit, was not satisfied with that condition in His church. A great shaking and rattling of the bones began to occur as the Lord raised up an evangelical remnant within the country. And He reached out and touched and changed from the inside out men like Thomas Chalmers, who were able to teach mathematics in the university while they pastored full-time on the side. And He changed them into zealous men for the hearts and souls of the people of the land. And zealous in missionary concern that the gospel might go forth to all the nations that Jesus would be praised. In 1834, this burgeoning evangelical love of the Lord faced a new and frightening enemy. No longer did they find themselves marginalized and pushed to the side within the bounds of presbytery and general assembly. They had grown in numbers. But they found themselves challenged by the government. The government began to oppose them. The judicial branch of government began to rule that young evangelical ministers could not be installed and ordained by presbytery into pulpits. But rather, whoever the richest man, the richest laird in the local community might be, that he could pick whoever he wished. And normally the lairds loved the moderate party that was respectable and presumed to be better educated. And it all came to a head in the little town of Ochterarder in Perthshire. There a a Mr. Robert Young was put before the congregation to be voted on that he might be their new minister. And the congregation uh, rejected the nomination of this moderate liberal figure the presbytery refused to ordain Mr. Young because the people had not given their approbation, as is clearly clearly required in the New Testament for a pastor. But the civil court of the land, with the most influential family in the community suing, the civil court determined that the presbytery must, upon pain of imprisonment, lay hands on the man and place him in that pulpit. He must be ordained. Why? Because the court ruled that the church was but a creation of the state. That the state was the one that had created the church. It was the church of Scotland. And therefore, uh, the Scottish government, the Scottish nation, was responsible for the existence of the church. And she must bow her will to the queen or the king and their regents. What ensued in the church was a ten-year conflict. For one decade, the evangelicals fought against the government, against judges, against those who were sent by the monarch and by parliament trying to persuade them otherwise. This ten years spiritual conflict uh, had hanging in the balance the spiritual independence of the church. And so in 1842, the Church of Scotland, now controlled by a majority of evangelicals in God's kindness, passed a claim declaration in protest against these encroachments. They warned the civil government that they were breaking the Bible, they were usurping the kingship of Jesus Christ over the church. They drew a line in the sand with a solemn warning and document which was ignored by the state.
And so at the next assembly in 1843, the pious Dr. David Welsh, the the previous moderator from the, the previous assembly, refused to clap the gavel and call the general assembly into order. He looked out over the the gathering of ministers from all over the land and he said that he could not in good conscience constitute the assembly and call it to order because of all the intruders sitting out in the assembly forced on congregations against their will by the judicial branch of government, by the state. And so he, along with Thomas Chalmers and William Cunningham, Hugh Miller and 450 other ministers arose as one man and they walked down the street to an assembly hall prepared for them in an old warehouse. And there they constituted the Church of Scotland free of government control. The first act of Thomas Chalmers in calling them to order was to have them rise and sing the psalm before us, Psalm 43. Oh, send thy light forth and thy truth. Let them be guides to me. I'll spare you from singing anymore. And as they sang that psalm, the providence of God smiled upon them. It was a, it was a typical Scottish day. Cloudy, rainy, and depressing. And the clouds parted And a beam of light came down from the roof in that assembly hall and shone upon the deed of separation that they had all just signed, giving up their salaries, giving up their manses, giving up their parishes, and all the earthly comforts to to which they were rightly, uh, had right to obtain in order to protect the spiritual nature of the church that pagan, secular, civil influence would not control and overthrow the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in their land. This psalm before us is a historic psalm. It's a psalm which God has used on a number of occasions to touch and to encourage the hearts and lives of His people. And so it's good for us together to gather around these five verses and to see this simple fact that only... God is the vindication of His people. Only God is our vindication. And in Him we must hope. Now this little psalm begins with a plea for vindication. Look at the first two verses. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For Thou art the God of my strength. Why hast Thou rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Here, the author cries out to his heavenly Father, uh, cries out with a a heart in anguish and and upset, not because the uh, lunch has been burned, not because there's an inconvenience in the day, but because there is an enemy in the land. God is his strength. God is his and the nation's hope. And yet, an ungodly nation is oppressing the people of God. An ungodly nation led by an unjust man is oppressing the Lord's anointed. 
This feeling of neglect and rejection is one which is the common lot of Christian experience. You know, sometimes you see a picture of evangelical Christianity and what it's like, it's supposed to be like in our lives. And, and it's a snapshot of all smiles and happiness. They're balloons, they're, uh, they're party poppers, they're, they're banners and flags flying. Isn't the Christian life one wonderful thing after another? One exciting emotional trip after another? But that's not the experience of the psalmist. Here the psalmist prays for vindication and deliverance because things are going wrong in his life. Uh, There is an external force which is seeking to overthrow and undo him and undo the nation. And so in the midst of his trouble, he cries to God for things to be set right. You know, in our own lives, you and I are very often in the same experience. Oh yes, there are times of of delight. There are times of joy and triumph. You know, a week ago we had 260 people in morning worship. There wasn't a place in the parking lot that you could uh, leave your car. Uh, There was hardly room on the road and, and we were missing 100 today because of the convergence of spring break and and that accursed uh, changing of the hour on the worst day of the year. Terrible. Uh, doubtless there were lots of good things people were doing. Families are taking vacations and, and businessmen are overseas uh, doing their duty to their employer. But at the end of the day, you know, there was a great disappointment that we all might feel. And to whom do we turn in those times? The temptation for us all is to turn to ourselves. If there's trouble, we reach for our gun. If there are those who are speaking against us, we reach to our cleverness in order to put them in their place. If there is a shortage, if there is a need for more resource, then we work harder or we work smarter or we will accomplish it by our own hand, we think. We're Americans. But at the end of the day, the psalmist shows us here that when livelihood in life is threatened, the first place we should turn, not the last, not the only, but the first place we should turn is to God for our vindication and for our aid. Oh, yes, we use means. But the wise, godly man, the one who wants to think Christ's thoughts after him first, first and always turns, his eyes to heaven and to his heavenly Father and cries out with the psalmist about all the varied and oppressive conditions of life. Lord, vindicate me. Lord, will you deliver me? Lord, why is this happening? Why is my heart cast down? Why is there such trouble? We take all of our burdens and difficulties to the Lord in prayer because he is the one mighty and able to save. The particular occasion here is apparently some sort of uh, physical threat or or military threat of the nation. Uh, There is a Gentile nation which is out to get the people of God. There's a particular Gentile leader whose hand is pressing against Israel's neck. You know, it's hard enough when when a bully at school or some strong man is after us, but for a government... An army? 
an organized system that can bring uh, so many pressures upon all the points of our life, what can we do? Chalmers and Cunningham faced that in Scotland in the 19th century. The government they were facing was power hungry. Oh, the, the life in, in the fair land of Scotland was changing. Society was evolving. It was shifting even as we feel in our own day, in our own country. Are things really the same as they were when you were growing up? I think not. Times they are changing. There was the greatest and most profound social shift and realignment in their day. As people moved off of farms and hamlets, as they moved out of the lands of the moors and the heather-covered hills, and they gathered in the great teeming cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh, as they were pushed uh, into those urban environments and, and had to learn how to survive, not by planting, not by fishing, not by harvesting, but by spinning in great textile factories, by getting up and going to a nine-to-five or, or six-to-six job where their lives were threatened, where there was... Horrible conditions in which to work. Oh, the the people of God found themselves in poverty and in oppression in that land. And a social shift took place. There had been churches and and pastors and, and sessions and Christian values and community back in their little villages. But when they got to Glasgow or Dundee or Edinburgh, it was every man for himself. They built entire neighborhoods with giant blocks full of apartments and flats, which you would pay dearly for, and there was no church within walking distance. There was no proclamation of the gospel to which you could flee, because, you see, the government had arranged for all this building to take place, and no proper spiritual care for the people was allowed at first. You see, God makes a difference in... And he is mighty and able to impact not just small individual lives and decisions that we face, but he is able to take and shake the nations. And and even as he turns the world upside down, he is the one who is mighty and able to save in the midst of such massive circumstances. You and I are not the first to face fears to sit at night listening to the news and wonder what in the world is happening and what is it going to be like and what is going to happen to my children and to my grandchildren. We are not the first to face those fears. And we must follow the psalmist in turning to the Lord for deliverance and vindication. You see, that vindication of God can be a vindication even from oppression. Not just abstract theoretical oppression that we, that we talk about, you know, over, over teacups and over coffee mugs, but real, flesh-smacking, bone-breaking power. This last week saw a very interesting filibuster in the Senate. Lots of opinions about the politics, that's not my point. But you know, if uh, death from the sky with almost not a word, if that is not an issue of moral interest and of concern and 
and the issue of the rule of law and how this is organized and regulated and controlled, if these things are not of the concern of the people of God, then what is? Oh, oppression from an organized government is able to inflict such massive damage. Such amazing impact for good or for evil is possible when there's such a concentration of power. And we as believers must listen to the psalmist who is not wearing a pair of rose-colored glasses about the dangers of concentrated power and might and the damage that can come from it. In our own day, in the courts of public opinion and in the patterns of public society and the rules which our courts enforce. For example, in questions of God's rightly ordained marriage and pressures coming of other opinions of sexual deviancy in our culture and the impact and harm that is real that comes to children and to families. Oh, the heartache and heartbreak. In these situations, we must hear the psalmist and, and we must turn to God and ask for His aid, for His comfort and for His wisdom. We don't reach for the easy, convenient weapon of hate. That would not be like our Lord. We hold out the loving gospel to all who are in need, even to our enemies who so much need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But we do rightly label evil evil and oppose wrong behavior and improper law and posture in the land. Vindication comes only from God. Power and change in the hand of providence only comes from God. And so we must plead to our Heavenly Father who Himself loves us and has sent His Son on the one hand and on the other has the lever as the stick guiding the nations, his holy will and decree being worked out in ways that leave us absolutely breathless. And the psalmist points us to spiritual means that God uses in this great battle. Oh, send thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling places, the psalmist sings. Here he's not talking about sunlight that that beams through a window and, and shines on a table. He's talking about the uncreated light of God. Let the light of God, the one who, yes, has created all that we see and all that we know, but let the life and the power Let the life-giving light, the transforming light, the sanctifying life divine of God Himself make a difference in our lives and in our world. God, help us. Here the psalmist has his focus like a laser, not upon what he is able to conjure up in himself, but what God alone is able to give. From His well that is never exhausted, of resource that we need each and every moment to walk in fellowship with Him. Genesis 1, in verse 3, we hear God say, Let there be light. And so the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who 
has streaming from Him, inevitably, this uncreated light, He calls into being the light that our eye can see and speaks it by the word of His power into existence. And in 1 John 1.5 we read, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Created light versus uncreated light. Something about the very being of God Himself. He's our creator and sustainer. But perhaps we can see most clearly the twinkling of that light, the, the sparking of that light, the difference that life makes, light makes in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is fully God, but also man. He has added a human body and a human soul to Himself in the Incarnation. He has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And in so doing, He brings together that divine light, that divine power, that divine existence, and brings it into perfect harmony with that human life, that human light, that human power to live for God and love Him like no one else. Every believer is saved by union and communion with Him. Everyone who trusts in Him is no longer alone, but wed to Him. Where does the light and life of a believer that we experience in our daily walk with Him come from? From Christ. From Him who is the eternal Son of God. One who is mighty and able to save us and give us all that we need. Every Christian fruit, every Christian grace, every Christian gift necessary for the operation of His church. And so the psalmist is pointing us to heaven. Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Because what you and I really need is not found on the human plane, per se. What we really need is the grace and strength of God. And He is able to supply it. His light is mentioned in the same breath as His truth. And this is not the opinions of men. Uh, This is not idle speculation or or some dry, dusty, philosophical thing that he has in mind. The psalmist is singing at the top of his lungs about the true truthfulness of God, about the transcendent truth of God. And light and truth of this divine sort are seen as two sisters that take us by the hand and so profoundly lead us along the path to Christ. Lead us to the symbols of Christ. To those shadows which point us to Christ, even to the very temple mound itself, that we might see there, on the one hand, the sweet sister light, and on the other hand, the sweet sister truth, leading us so gently to Jesus Christ our Lord, who is mighty and able to save Oh, God has spoken through prophets. God has spoken in many portions and in many ways in the past. But in that one that light and truth lead us to, in Jesus Christ our Lord, we meet God's definitive, God's defining, and God's ultimate word to us of salvation. He was the promised Messiah. 
He is the secret or mystery to all the Bible and to all of history. The seed of the woman who is come. The son of David who is also the son of God and who will reign forever. He comes and tabernacles with us, dwells with us, lives with us, makes a difference among us. And so the fruits of this vindication are also sung to us by the psalmist. Let them bring me to the holy hill and to the dwelling places of God. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. The first impact or effect of God's divine vindication and divine transformation by His light and by His truth is that we are taken to the altar of God, to the cross of Christ, so symbolized. There we see the blood which was spilled. We see the sacrifices made, all pointing to that One who would substitute Himself for us as a sacrifice for our sins, our guilt. Does He not take upon Himself our payment? Does He not make it in His own life? that which would take us an eternity to give back, and we would never complete the payment. Oh, going to the altar of God is a fruit of this vindication because sweet sister light and sweet sister truth have taken us to Christ, and so we see Him as the crucified Lamb of Calvary, slain before the foundation of the world, that His death was always intended by our Father. And all of God's dealings with us, even from the time we first took breath, were characterized and modified and transformed and defined by who He is and what He truly and surely would do. And so we find joy. It's not just that we go to the altar, but we learn there about the internal and external joy which overflows in His presence. The psalmist sings, Then I will go to the altar of God to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise Thee, O God my God. The psalmist here bubbles over with doxology. You know, we don't have the, the music that the psalmist sang. We heard uh, modern-day lyres tonight. We heard voices, all of ours together, raised up in praise to our Heavenly Father. And it's appropriate and in keeping with this particular psalm that we so do. Because, you see, God gives us joy on the inside. His doxological praise works from the inside out. He gives us what we do not have by nature, which is life and light and love. And so that love of Him and that rejoicing in Him who has sacrificed His Son for our salvation overflows in our lives and so we exclaim that He, He is our joy. There are a lot of things in this life that we like. I like bluegrass and Texas brisket. But they don't hold a candle to what our Lord 
and dwelling with Him. Oh, it is good from the inside out for this transformation to be made. Different cultures have different emotional profiles and presentations. Our our pastor is going to fit in, so I understand it, in Africa just perfectly. He was dancing today earlier. He was dancing in the narthex because the doors, which always have slapped him in the back as he's tried to shake your hands, have now been fixed. And as I saw this, I was asked, what do you think of this by a good member? And I said, well, I, I, I think he's going to get along just fine in Africa. But then there are others of us from uh, colder and more dour lands by our background. And so we smile a bit on the inside. You know, if a Scotsman just lets a little bit of a smile out, then uh, that's an amazing and wonderful thing. It's like, a, it's like a little sunshine coming down in the midst of all the rain. We walked in this morning, and I said to Arthur John, it was, it was raining. We parked on the road. It was raining. We were getting quite wet. Uh, one of our young men ran out with an umbrella to help us, and, and I said, Arthur, do you know what this day is? And he said, what? And I said, this is sunshine in, in Scotland, a sunny day. But God gives us that sunshine on the inside that overflows to the outside and joy gives way to praise. You see, there's nothing the psalmist can do to repay God for the sacrifice of His Son symbolized on the altar. There's nothing that we can add to accomplish our salvation. What is the proper response when your bill can't be paid and someone else pays it for you? Joy, delight, overflowing happiness from the heart, and break out your guitar and sing. Pluck your lyre before the goodness of your heavenly Father. Oh, upon the lyre I shall praise thee, O God my God, the psalmist sings. And he takes comfort. It's interesting that by this point in the psalm, we would think, according to the average evangelical American modern uh, painting that we have in our minds, that we've gone from despair and from oppression and for the need of deliverance and the need of vindication to, to God breaking forth in light and truth, to God reminding us of what He's done for us in His Son, and all should be goodness and light from that point forward, and it's just not. Verse 5 sounds very much like verse 2. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Between the time of the first coming of Christ and the second coming when He will gather His bride to Him and have the great marriage feast of the Lamb. Between that time and, and even before, from those first moments in the garden where our our first father and our first mother in God's kindness did not drop dead due to their rebellion. But rather there was a pause. There was room for the gospel to become and the hope to be given that there would be one who was the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent and bring deliverance to the people of God. During that great time in which we now live, it's a fallen world. And there's great brokenness and heartache. Oh, trust in Christ and, and you are saved. 
but you are saved to life as he providentially assigns it to you. A life in a broken world. A life in a family and a community and even a church that is not absolutely perfect all the time. You are assigned a particular history and trajectory, an occasion on which to live to his glory in the midst. Yes, of delight and happiness. Yes, mountaintop times of great rejoicing and delight. But also times of the valley of the shadow, of illness and brokenness and suffering and death. Just exactly what the psalmist was fearing. Sometimes the enemy is knocking on the gate and sometimes he's holding the key to the gate. And what do you say? You say, why are you disturbed within me, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Our comfort Comfort for our souls as they are disturbed even now. In your Christian life, just tonight, that discomfort it finds its comfort only in Christ. Hope in His Heavenly Father, who is the one able to aid your countenance. You know, I had a number of great shocks when I went off to college. I, uh, I had never done an all-night lab. Uh, I had never met uh, mean and angry math and physics teachers. I remember uh, my father taking me to Clemson and dropping me off. We, we took my stuff out of the car. We, we went up to uh, Johnstone uh, sixth floor, and, and the elevator doors opened, and the sound of the music uh, blasting down the hallway was, uh, it was absolutely amazing. My father uh, helped me get my stuff in the room and he turned to me and he said, shook my hand, my ruling elder father, and he said, lots of luck, son, see you later. (laughs) And off he went. What do you do when facing fears and, and evil that would cause your face to fall And you would want to put your fingers in your ears and not listen to any of life. The psalmist points the way. Hope in God, who is the help of my countenance. He can lift up your heart. He can lift up your face. He can put a smile on you. Not like a sorority sister kind of painted on with lipstick. Not like a fraternity brother who's smiling because he's thinking of the keg that night. No. Delighting in God. Delighting in His goodness, His comfort, His power, and that He will ultimately win and you will win with Him. Oh, only God is your vindication in this life and in the life to come. Trust in Him. Let us pray. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, We thank you that true life is found in you alone. We thank you that you have uncreated life, that you have true truth, that those things can make an impact and a difference upon sinners like us. 
that you are able to protect and aid us even through the day. Help us to look to you alone for our salvation. Give us joy from the inside out. And may it, even through our faces we pray, all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.